Hello, Radioland, Podcastville, and all the ships at sea. My name is Medea Ocher, and you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. Joining me today is my co-host, Kate Wolf, hey. editor-at-large. Hey, Dea. Hi, Kate. So nice to see you again. Nice to see you. I missed you. Oh, yeah, you too. <laughs> Happy New Year. Happy New Year. How was your New Year? My New Year was very nice. It was, this is thematic, it was a Soviet New Year. No. Yeah. We had a big party. We had a tree. Mm. We gave gifts to the children after 12. Oh. They were very tired. But yeah, we had a big Soviet party. Nice. How was your New Year? It was nice. Very relaxed, mellow. Yeah, just ate some fish stew. Next day, good. made some hop and John. I don't know what that is. Traditional New Year's stew to bring luck. Which, Traditional in what sense? I think it's a Southern thing. Oh, oh, what's in it? I think you're usually supposed to use a ham hock, but there are also cabbage leaves. for. I think it's a money thing for the green. Oh. And for the change, you have some black-eyed peas or lentils. I did a veggie style. It tastes good. Oh, it Great. sounds really good. Do you yeah. make that every year? No, but I try to do something. I have so few traditions, so I need something. <laughs> And on today's show, Kate will be talking with Diane Hansen, the author of Bob Miser's AMG 1000 Model Directory. Kate, can you tell us a little bit about what that is? So Bob Miser is actually a photographer who started working in the 1940s and worked for almost 50 years photographing men erotically. So I'm very excited to talk to Diane. I'm very excited to listen to that interview. Oh, yeah. But first, our digital editor, Gustavo Turner, will be speaking with the director and producer of the documentary, The Seventh Fire, about the struggles of men on a Native American reservation in Minnesota. Jack Ricobono is the director, and Shane Slattery-Quintanilla is the producer that Gustavo will be speaking with. Hi, I'm Gustavo Turner, digital editor of LARB, and we're here with Jake Riccobono and Shane Slattery Quintanilla, who are the director and producer of the documentary The Seventh Fire. Hi, guys. Hey, Gustavo. Thanks for having us. Hi, Gustavo. The film is now available through video on demand. You can see it on Netflix, Amazon, and iTunes. When did you guys open it originally? The film opened in July, and we had a theatrical run in about 10 cities in the U.S. It also had a theatrical release in the U.K. that was in May. Now, that was 2016. What was the year when you guys started working on this documentary? Well, let's see. The first uh, research trip that I did for this project was in October of 2010. So it was quite a while ago. We did 14 shoots for the film over about a three-year period. And then it did about a year of editing and then the festival circuit for about a year and a half. The film tells the story of Rob Brown and his protege, Kevin, who are uh, Native Americans of the Ojibwe tribe who live in a village in Pine Point in northern Minnesota. And you guys chronicle their life. What would you say that the film shows? We started to look into this topic of gang culture migrating from inner cities and prisons out to remote 
Native communities across the country. And I had made a short film on this same reservation about 10 years ago. And so I knew some people in the community. So when we first started to look into this topic, there was very little out there in the way of other journalistic pieces or information. But we knew that it was a phenomenon, that this gang culture was sort of going to these places where you wouldn't expect to find it. And we wanted to look into that. And so eventually I said, let me go back to the community where I know people on the White Earth Reservation and just see, you know, is it happening? Will anyone talk to us about it? So I did that first trip and I went to the White Earth Tribal College and that was where I first met Rob Brown, who would become the main subject of the film. Rob went through 39 foster families as a child and then in and out of the juvenile system and then had been imprisoned four times before I met him. He's this big, physically imposing, gangster-looking kind of guy and he came up to me after the class and was just kind of like, oh, you want to know about Native gangs? Why don't you come talk to me? But he was in his mid-30s and I think was at a point in his life where he was just trying to examine things. I don't think he expected to live as long as he did, quite frankly. And he's a super smart, intelligent guy who's a self-taught writer and, you know, has a lot of different qualities to him that you might not see at first glance. And that was the thing that first intrigued me. So the film is really a very intimate look at these bigger issues through the lives of Rob and then his younger protege, Kevin, who's 17 during the filming. We didn't want to make a kind of traditional social issue documentary, but we wanted to try to make something very cinematic and immersive that would really take you on a journey with these guys and transport you to a place that most Americans know very little about. I thought it was interesting when I was looking at the New York Times review, I thought it was very strange because they headlined it, The Seventh Fire Explores Drug Abuse on an Indian Reservation. And it's a fact of the movie, and it's shocking that you see so much drug use and that some of their aspirational intentions are to enter the drug trade. But that's not what the movie is about at all. I think that's typical, though. That's sort of in the zeitgeist of the way people understand documentary film. They want there to be a handle on it and a particular sort of issue that they can say this is what the film's about. And we don't really ask that of a lot of other art forms, right, that it has to be about something in that particular way. And certainly that's not the way we set out to make the film. As Jack said, when we met Rob and then later Kevin, we knew the film needed to be a character-driven film, and it wasn't going to be this authoritative document of the larger cultural issues. I mean, that didn't seem interesting, and it didn't seem a way to do service to these men's lives and stories. There are things in that review that we appreciate and we think the reviewer had insight into, but I think that kind of headline is typical of the way people tend to try to pigeonhole documentaries into being about a certain thing and sort of have to have a handle that's easy for people to hold on to. And in fact, that's one of the things that we wanted to kind of push back against because contemporary Native life you see very little of in our mainstream media And when you do see things, you often see these headlines and you read about these horrible statistics or these phrases that kind of strip away people's humanity. But you very rarely get to hear human stories or really kind of get into the experience of life. We really wanted to create something that went beyond those stereotypes that maybe you have read about here and there and try to do something that would engender empathy and hopefully greater understanding and awareness. And that's the way we approached it from the beginning. We thought of Rob and Kevin as collaborators. 
and we invited them to be part of the process. Rob immediately understood the project and our ideas and that we weren't there to sensationalize anything. We weren't doing reality show style filmmaking, but they were working with them to give him a platform for his story. That was also part of why we gave both the main subjects cameras as a way for them to give us footage and to be sort of part of that process. While you were shooting, what did you find the hardest thing to witness there? The eternal problem with the documentary is that you are there with a the camera, but you're also in the scene. What was the hardest for you to be in? I think as a human being, the toughest thing is really the kids on the reservation. There are kids everywhere, and they're immersed in this environment also. And that's tough. You're not just shooting with a camera. You know, you're also spending a lot of time with people to build up trust and understanding. And so there's a lot of time spent with the camera off that obviously as an audience member, you probably aren't necessarily aware of, but the trust is very much a two-way street. And so you are involved in people's lives. And certainly that was one of the toughest things for me. In terms of the filmmaking process, I think that the most challenging moment was probably when Rob was sentenced to go back to prison for a fifth time because we were only about halfway into production at that point. And of course, we had no idea what kind of access we'd be able to have to shoot with Rob from that point forward. But we worked very hard with the Department of Corrections in Minnesota and built up a, a strong relationship with them. And we were the first independent film crew to be allowed to film in their system in that way. And that was really important to us because these institutions loom so large in Rob and Kevin's lives. In films, you often have this fade to black and the jail door slam shut and maybe you have a title card or something, but you don't get to actually be in there and kind of see what's going on, what, what that's like. And so that was such a big part of Rob's story that we really fought to have that access and to be able to bring the story in there and show that to the audience as well. And the institutions, they didn't think that there was going to be any problem with you showing what? No, they did. <laughs> <laughs> But I think the Minnesota Department of Corrections, they did put some faith in us to represent the things that we set out to do. We weren't trying to do any kind of critical job on them. We were really trying to show the reality and, and they're proud of some of their services that they provide. You know, they have spiritual programming in their correction facilities. They have extensive educational programs. So to them, it was a chance maybe to show some of those aspects. It's very complicated for Rob that prison isn't always an inherently bad thing. As you see in the film, he sobers up. It's a chance for him to reckon with the situation he's in. And so it's very complicated. It's obviously a dark sort of synergy between the reservation and the prison, and that's been talked about by, you know, a lot of people. Leonard Peltier talks about that, how the prison is now the biggest reservation that we have. So there's a lot of difficult issues behind those things, but we didn't set out to sort of indict the corrections facility, and I think they probably understood that. Here's an audio excerpt from the film where the protagonist, Rob Brown, talks about his life. To me, what tradition is, is uh, what a group or a culture does repeatedly to where it's actually their beliefs or their behavior up on that reservation, you know. Communicating with your language was a tradition. I really want my culture. I want to know my language again. Bring you in the sky. Yeah. You know, I went to prison four times. Just trying to be more careful and cautious this time. 
And when I come to jail, you know, all the drugs get out of my system and everything starts to be real clear on where I'm at. I want this cycle to end. I used to feel like I wasn't true. That was an excerpt from the film The Seventh Fire, and we're back here with Jack Riccobono and Shane Slattery-Quintanilla, who are the creators of the documentary. Now, you mentioned the spiritual dimension, and of course, the film's called The Seventh Fire. You want to talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, so The Seventh Fire is an Ojibwe prophecy, and it's part of what brought them to the middle of the United States and in Canada. They received this prophecy when they were living in the Northeast, and it sort of foretold seven different periods of their history to come. And they went on a giant migration as a nation and settled in the lakes region. So this prophecy has many different parts to it, but it foretold of a period of cultural destruction and that the seventh and final fire would be a time when their youngest generation would face a choice, a fork in the road to potentially return to their traditional ways and lead a rebirth of their nation or go down a darker path. And this was a prophecy I learned about when I made this short documentary initially 10 years ago, which was about wild rice, which is a sacred food for the Ojibwe and and part of the same prophecy. And yeah, over the course of making the film, we sort of came to that as a potential title because these guys are grappling with their identities. And I think for Rob in particular, you really see in the film that he has this serious connection with his native culture. He was raised by his grandfather when he was very little and received some of the teachings. And so that part of his identity is very strong. But then you also have his life with the 39 foster families and the juvenile system and the correctional system, which brought him into this gangster culture And that's, you know, the other identity, which is also a tool for his survival, basically. And so I think the film, in a lot of ways, is about that struggle between his gang identity and his native identity. And it also opens the door to continuing the story through his daughter, who he named Persephone. One of our favorite parts of the film, or of Rob's story, is him describing how he decided to name his daughter. And He was sort of put into a storage locker when he was in grade school because he had been misbehaving and he discovered a book of Greek mythology and he decided after reading the beautiful, tragic story of Hades and Persephone that he would name his daughter Persephone. And again, it shows you that Rob has this very mythical imagination. He's a survivor in many ways. He's sort of obviously a survivor on the streets and in the difficult life situations he's been in, but also imaginatively, I think a way that he stayed sane through all the difficult things he's been through is this kind of imaginative part of him. And he would send us pages from his notebooks, his journal from prison with poems and reflections. And he had these very writerly impulses and ambitions that come out through the film. One of his poems is in the film also. And you guys have also helped him produce a book that ties in to the film, right? Yeah. As Shane mentioned, when he went back into prison, we asked him to keep a journal. And when he had been in prison previously, he had started working on a novel. And so really, that's part of his complicated relationship, I think, with prison. When he's behind bars, that was really the period in which he focused the most on his creative writing and expressing himself through poetry. And so when we ended production, we had this amazing archive of these handwritten pages of letters and notes and poems. And we really wanted to help put that material into a book 
And so we collaborated with a Brooklyn-based art book publisher to create uh, White Earth Stories, which is a limited edition art book that has stills from the film and a collection of poems that Rob composed while he was incarcerated. And it's available here in Los Angeles at Skylight Books, right? Yes, it's at Skylight here in L.A. What was the reaction of Rob when he saw the book, when he saw his work published? I think he has a complicated relationship with his writing also. For him, he'd never really had any creative peers. And so I think part of him being involved in this project, one of the things that attracted him to it was being able to really work with us and collaborate with us on this endeavor of making the film. And the writing in some ways ended up being a part of that. And I think sending the writing to us and receiving encouragement for his writing, which I don't think he'd ever really received before, made a really big impact on him. And it was good because Rob was released by the time we started really collaborating on the construction of the book. So he got to be part of the process of uh, looking at the proofs. And we all decided together that the collection would have more power if we published his writing alongside the actual scans of the prison notebooks themselves. So you could see part of that Mm -hmm. texture of that reality for him being inside and, and writing on these notepads. So side by side, you have the sort of transcribed formatted version always next to the scanned version from the book. And he appreciated that sort of directness that this was just, it showed the real artifact of his experience. And you guys had the opportunity to get some backers after you had basically finished production. You got Terrence Malick and Natalie Portman showed interest. And eventually you got to show the film at the White House. You went from the point where you were making the film on the reservation with these people who were leading really tough lives. And suddenly, what was the point where this started picking up momentum and became this other thing? Well, our our first executive producer who signed on was actually Chris Ayer, the native filmmaker who directed Smoke Signals and a lot of other work. And and he came on board when we were just about 25% into production, so actually very early on. And then we were able to share a sample with Natalie Portman when we were maybe halfway into production. Both of them, I think, responded to Rob and to Kevin and also just to the style of the film, which was very immersive and kind of character-driven. Chris, of course, knew about reservation life very intimately, and I think he was really impressed by the kind of access that we had and the things that we were capturing in the real world and felt like this story, you know, Rob's story, had really never been told before. So he was very supportive from an early stage and watched probably 10 rough cuts of the film during post-production. For Natalie, I think she really didn't know that much about this community like a lot of Americans. It's just very out of sight, out of mind. And it's a part of American history that a lot of Americans really haven't reckoned with. I mean, we still have all of these myths of Thanksgiving and all of these stereotypes of the noble savage that are still very present in our culture. I mean, these aren't like ancient things. Uh, Hollywood is still recycling those myths on a regular basis. So I think that really struck her. And she's also very thoughtful about how she can support projects at all levels and bring awareness to topics that she thinks are important. So we were very lucky, you know, to have them as passionate supporters of the project. And that definitely helped a lot in allowing us to raise the financing to finish production and post-production. And with Mr. Malik, you know, Natalie had done two movies with him and felt that 
he would respond to the filmmaking style and, and also knew that he had a deep interest in Native history and culture. You know, he made The New World, and he's also from Oklahoma, where many tribes were relocated. And so that's something that he really cares about. So, yeah, I mean, it's a definitely a long journey making this kind of project. It's tough to raise institutional support because it's verite. You don't really know where the story is going to go, so there's a lot of risk and we were very lucky to have this team to help us finish the film and then also get it out in the world and bring some attention to it. Yeah, and it was great that they didn't just lend their names. Those three EPs in particular all watched multiple cuts, gave us notes. So that really felt like they were part of the creative team also, which was great. Obviously, it's a dream come true to have one of your heroes, Terrence Malick, give notes on your rough cut. That was a highlight for me of the creative process. And you guys went to the White House to show it. The advisor for Native American Affairs was there. What was the reaction in Washington to what you were showing? That was definitely a highlight for sure of this process because both Rob and Kevin were invited to come with us and to be on a panel after we screened the film with federal officials and journalists and academics. And so to see Rob and Kevin together, you know, on that stage and kind of speaking their truth in the center of power, of global power. It was pretty amazing. Yeah, it was a very good discussion. I mean, I think it was about a 45-minute panel discussion that we had after the screening, and there was a Department of Justice official there and also President Obama's top advisor on Native American affairs, and there were a lot of really thoughtful responses. And we also had the editor of The Marshall Project, Bill Keller, who sort of recognized that for a lot of mainstream media, Indian country is like flyover country. And there are just so few pieces done about what's going on in Indian country. And so one of the interesting moments was that Mr. Keller kind of committed to putting some writers on that beat to try to look into more of these issues more deeply and, and get more of those stories out into the world. Yeah, the White House experience was incredible, really, because, again, Rob and Kevin being there with that platform at the forum discussion was amazing. I mean, for Kevin, that was the first time he'd left the state of Minnesota. It was the first time he'd flown on a plane. And for that trip to be for him this chance to speak to this kind of audience. And they did an amazing job conveying their stories and some of the issues that they've been facing to that audience and on that forum. Yeah, and there was, you know, a certain kind of dark poetry to it also. The reception for the event was in a room in the White House called the Indian Treaty Room, <laughs> right? So sort of the room of broken treaties. And that irony was not lost on Rob and Kevin or, or Chris Eyre, for that matter, one of our EPs. So the whole experience really was quite amazing. And we were very grateful that, you know, we don't expect the Trump White House to extend that invitation, obviously. So we're very happy that we got in when we did to sort of share Rob and Kevin's experiences there. I thought it was striking. And again, I want to repeat the name of the film, The Seventh Fire, which is available video on demand. And Rob Brown's book, White Earth Stories, which is available at Skylight. What I was going to say about the film is that we live in an environment where we're used to cameras being everywhere through reality television. And also there is a fetishization of crime documentaries with making a murder and trying to have the audience sitting at home and solving something. And I think it's so refreshing that The Seventh Fire is something that sort of looks like those two things, but is so different in intent and spirit. You manage to bring the reality of what happens in a kitchen, in a reservation at 2 a.m. in the morning, and you got to screen that at the White House, which is something that people 
would not normally be a witness to. Thanks. Yeah, we really appreciate that. We definitely wanted it to be more about that everyday texture, the, the granular reality of these guys' lives and not the sensational, as you said, crime drama approach. And we appreciate that that came through. Yeah, I thought it was remarkable. Again, the movie is called The Seventh Fire. The book is White Earth Stories. Thank you, Jack and Shane. Thanks, Gustavo. Thank You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, coming to you from Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. This is Kate Wolf, editor-at-large for LARB, and I'm here with Diane Hansen, the sexy books editor for Toshin. She's the author of a new book of photographs by Bob Miser called Bob Miser's AMG 1000 Model Directory. Welcome, Diane. Hi, Kate. Glad <laughs> to be here. I'm so happy you're here. So I'm a huge Bob Miser fan, but I don't know how many of our listeners are familiar with him. So maybe you could just tell us a little bit about him. Who was he? Bob Miser was the publisher-creator of America's first gay magazine, it wasn't announced as gay, it wasn't publicized as gay, but it was the first magazine that was obviously catering to a gay audience. He started Athletic Model Guild, which was his parent company, in 1945, and out of that became Physique Pictorial in 1951. He was just one of those born eccentrics. He kept diaries from the time he was a teenager, a young teenager, and he had his life all set down in these diaries from that early age. He knew he was gay, never dated a woman, never pretended to be anything but gay. And his sole interest was photographing men. And he did it every day from the time he was 23 years old until the time he died in 1992. Wow. And so there are a thousand models, but there are actually 2,000 models represented in the book. Is that true? Well, the book has over 1,000 pages, 1,048 pages in two volumes, and we didn't want to have to count them all. So over the period of a year when I was going up to the Miser archive and going through a quarter of a million negatives, we just made sure we had well over a thousand. I see, I see. And maybe you could describe these pictures for us a little. I think Miser's generally called a physique photographer. What does that mean and what do these pictures look like? Well, Bob Miser was kind of the founder of physique photography. The idea was this was the 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 cover for what they were up to and what he was up to was that they were photographing men with outstanding bodies as demonstration for bodybuilders, that these are aspirational figures. And therefore, you want to show as much of the aspirational figure as possible. So the guys were in posing straps, which are like a little G-string, a little pouch, a posing pouch, with naked buttocks. <laughs> and Bob did move on. From 1966 on, he started shooting guys actually totally naked anticipating the time when it was going to be legal, and then he published his first nudes in 1969. But these two books, this two-volume set, just covers his posing strap period. So these are men wearing a little thing, 
often grimy and dirty because Bob was not doing any laundry (laughs) over their genitals. And they're black and white for the most part. They are sometimes posing, bodybuilding poses. But as time went on, he photographed them more just as men in manly environments. You mentioned that he started off taking pictures of people or of these men in his mother's parlor room. What were some other settings that he that he used? Well, you know, there's a lot of false information about Bob and working with the archive. And, you know, I've learned how much of that was false. Bob, in the early days, started out at Muscle Beach taking pictures of the guys. Because, you know, how is a gay boy living down by, near downtown, going to meet all these bodybuilders? So he went out to Muscle Beach and just approached them and asked if he could photograph them and offered them free photographs. So that was the beginning. But Bob was going up to Joshua Tree. He had a friend named Frenchie Moore, one of those great names. I haven't been able to find anything about Frenchie, who had a ranch up near Palmdale, and he photographed a lot up there. He kept his donkey up there so that he could do all the um, photographs of boys riding the donkey. Poor donkey. (laughs) You know, movies of the boys on the donkeys. He had friends all over Los Angeles and patrons all over Los Angeles who would offer up their homes. So he had access to a kind of ruined Parthenon-looking place that he took several of the boys. But as time went on, Bob's world got smaller, and it moved out of the parlor after his mom died and into the many, many buildings that he acquired, creating his compound And so who were the models? I mean, were they bodybuilders? Were they, you mentioned that a lot of them were straight. Did they know what the photographs were for or? Well, I interviewed some of the guys who are still alive from those very early days, some of the guys he found on Muscle Beach. And yes, they all knew what he was, who he was, what he was taking the photos for. But as the one said, he was always a gentleman And he gave us beautiful photos. And there was no other way that these guys could get photos of themselves. Um, And every bodybuilder wants to see himself in photographs. So Bob, Bob just perfected his approach to men. There was a little piece of paper that was found in his wallet, an old children's wallet in his attic when he died, that said, be more masculine at all times, walk with great strides, just basically coaching himself to have a straight appearance to the world so that he would make these men comfortable. And once he started photographing guys and having them come back to the house and they could get those free photos, they passed the word around. And he gave them all cards. He understood that having a membership card would give them a sense of status, that they were not just coming to pose for a gay magazine. They were part of a guild. They were members of the Athletic Model Guild. And guys really prized those cards. Right. Wow. And he was very successful, not just with models, but with readers. Who was his reader base, and how was the magazine? How did it get distributed? You know, how did he get so successful? Well, Bob got successful because there are a lot of gay men in the world. Right. And he was making the only magazine that really 
made them feel that they were being addressed personally. As a friend of mine who knew Bob said, you know, he discovered the magazine when he was growing up in Cleveland, and he said that there were other physique magazines there. There were other magazines for bodybuilders, but when he saw Physique Pictorial, it just leaped out at him that these guys were there for him. They were there for him as a gay man, and they were looking at him in a way that felt welcoming. And he left Ohio, and he came out to California inspired by that magazine. And he didn't meet Bob right away, but he sought out Bob. And a lot of men did exactly the same thing. David Hockney sought out Bob. He came to the U.S., as he's always said, for two reasons, because of a picture of a Lautner house and because of Physique Pictorial and to meet Bob Miser. Wow. And it was... Men who identified as gay and men who identified as straight who bought that magazine, and they bought it in huge numbers, and it got shipped all over the world. Tom Finland, the great, you know, most famous gay artist of all time, he saw it in Finland and sent in photographs, not photographs, sent in artwork, right. mm -hmm. actual original artwork, of course, and was then discovered by Bob Miser, appeared on the cover of a 1957 issue. So, I mean, when Bob died, he said there were gold coins found in the walls that rained down when they started getting into the guts of the house, because he was also a hoarder. Right. So the house was just full of stuff. So he was hugely successful, but he also faced a lot of hardship in terms of censorship. You know, Bob, Bob's magazine was not one that pushed boundaries of nudity because Bob went to prison. Bob served a year in prison in 1947 for obscene materials, and that was just buttocks. Mm -hmm. You know, the guys had the posing straps on, but the butt was there. It took a while for the laws to calm down, but also models knew that they could extort money, or they thought they could extort money from Bob. What they found is they couldn't. Bob would go to court, and they would claim that Bob had molested them, Bob had done something improper, and all of those were struck down because they always found out, of course, that the guys were criminals and that they were just trying to get money, and Bob would not let anyone shake him down for money because he was a cheap son of a bitch. <laughs> Bob paid those guys $5 in the beginning, then he moved up to $10, and if he also had a social with them, they would get maybe another $10. Oh, I see. Okay, so a social is some A social was sexual activity. I it's see. never been clearly defined, but um, as I say, my friend David Hurls, who knew him for years, said that Bob was a man of simple tastes in that way. So, you know, that was going to be masturbation or oral sex. He was not, he didn't expect a lot, and particularly because his taste was straight boys. Mm, I see. So it sounds like he was around some very unsavory characters in a lot of ways. Was Bob ever beat up, or did he ever suffer physical harm from his models? Well, Bob liked unsavory characters. He was sexually attracted to unsavory characters, but Bob was a, a parental figure with these guys, and he didn't have the problems that some others did. That said, he was robbed. He was not beaten, but he was robbed, 
And there was the young man who set his warehouse on fire because he regretted having posed for Bob. And so oh, he no. tried to burn up his all the magazines. And of course, what happened then is the fire just burst the building apart and the magazines went flying all over the neighborhood. So <laughs> they were, um, yeah, they were heavily distributed in the uh, the general vicinity. He wrote in his diaries many, many times about people pulling knives, you know, attempting something. But Bob was a—he was a dad. He was a real dad to these guys, and he could usually make them stop just by being a dad. My friend David Hurls, on the other hand, who was his good friend, photographed the same guys he did, was robbed and beaten and— Wow. Yeah, abused by these same people who did not do it to Bob. I see. So he's building this empire and becoming known. And did he think of himself, you know, as a important part of the porn world or the art world? How did he see himself and his role? Well, Bob was extremely self-critical. And his diaries, every day you turn the pages, he gives his weight and he's disgusted by his weight. He's disgusted by his appearance. He's disgusted by not accomplishing more. He really wasn't in touch with his position in the world and what he did for men and what he did to help move gay literature forward. And that he was such an influence on Andy Warhol. He was such an influence on David Hockney. He dressed like a farmer. Mm-hmm. People say, you know, you people would come into the compound and they wouldn't be able to find Bob Miser because they somehow expected Bob Miser was going to look grander than he did. He'd be there in his old battered pants and his old dirty brown shoes, particularly as time went on in the later years where he rarely left the compound. He was cut off from the world. Mm-hmm. You know, he wasn't watching television. He wasn't reading. He was taking pictures. He was processing those pictures, and he was making his little magazine and taking care of the boys Mm. who started living on the property after his mom died. And where was this property again? It was, I don't even know what the neighborhood's called. It was down towards downtown. It's now a Guatemalan and Salvadoran neighborhood. Dennis Bell, who owns the archive, went down there, actually, because he's so devoted to the miser legacy, went down to where the houses are, and the houses have all been separated. Bob fenced in four houses, I believe, and then moved extra buildings in to make himself a compound. And he went and spoke to the people. They had no idea, but they let him go up on the roofs and look at all the previous sites where he photographed to really get an idea of what Bob was working with. And, you know, no sense of what there had been at all. It's kind of sad. The whole compound has been obliterated. Mm, That's too bad. You say Bob Miser was a kind of forerunner of physique photography, but looking back, what do you think makes his work so distinctive, just even from an aesthetic level? I mean, how do you differentiate from everything else that's out there? Well, it's like there's everything else is all one thing, and then there's Bob Miser. (laughs) You know, everybody else was trying to make the guys look elegant, 
They were photographing them, usually in classic postures and looking up towards heaven. Bob was heavily affected by the movies. Bob liked a lot of props. He liked a lot of animals. You know, the number of photographs I saw where guys have a monkey on their shoulder, a (laughs) chicken in their lap, you know, a rabbit down at their feet, just hundreds and hundreds of these. He liked to dress them up as Spartan warriors, as cowboys and Indians, as anything that he could imagine for his films. He made over 3,000 films, and all of them were costume dramas of some sort. But one thing that people really note beyond any of it is the facial expressions, and that what he got out of these men, the personality that he drew out of them, the smirking, the smiling, the sly looks, and the open, welcoming looks that they're giving to the camera. Now, it turned out, there was a look that people often speak of with Miser's photographs, where the guys look noble, and their eyes are looking up, and they look as if they're looking up to heaven, and there's this this beatific look on their faces. And a man who lived at Bob's finally got Bob to allow him into the studio so he could see. He just wanted to see what are they looking at. And it was that Bob had a mirror up over the place where he sat to photograph uh-huh. them. And the guys are looking at themselves. Right. And that that love that they have is seeing themselves the way Bob lit them, mm. the way he surrounded them with props. And to look up, because these were not highly educated boys. These were not rich boys. These were boys who needed 10 bucks. Right. And were willing to give a day to getting those 10 bucks and taking their clothes off. And they were just stunned and thrilled to see what Bob did for them. Wow. What's such a beautiful image. It's interesting because the book covers 20 years, Mm -hmm. right? So you're starting when the pictures have to be chased and coy and ending right before kind of what we think of as the beginning of the sexual revolution, both Mm -hmm. in gay pornography and straight pornography. So how did Bob's work change after nudity was legal? And how do you think it changed the kind of course of, you know, erotic imagery in general? Well, you know, Bob's work changed in the same way that heterosexual pornography changed in that The models got less perfect and more rough, shall we say. The bodybuilders disappeared. As soon as nudity came in, the bodybuilders disappeared. Mm -hmm. The actors disappeared. You know, no more did you have Ed Fury, star of sword and sandal films. You know, you didn't have Glenn Corbett, you know, who was a TV star, Those guys weren't coming down anymore. Nick Adams, star of The Rebel, no more. What you got now is guys with homemade tattoos and maybe a couple of missing teeth because they were coming down if they were straight, and it continued to be a primarily straight group of men. They were coming to get an erection in front of a gay man. And that changes it all. That's a line for a man to cross. So now he was getting hustlers. Mm, I see. But a lot of people liked those hustlers, and a lot of people preferred those hustlers to the bodybuilders that came before, because the hustler was a more available commodity. So how did his business continue after nudity became 
legal? Did he continue to be so successful or? He continued to be successful initially, but as soon as nudity became legal, he got a lot of competition. And there got to be big, slick color magazines, and Bob never printed a magazine in color, and his magazine stayed digest size. It started to come out less frequently. He made more money. He started to make more films and made more money on his films. When you talked earlier about how did he distribute, well, a lot of times Bob was distributing from the trunk of his car. Mm -hmm. He had friends who took magazines around. He never had a contract deal with a legitimate magazine distributor, which the other magazines had. Before I became the sexy book editor, Mm -hmm. I worked in porn for many years, and I worked for a company in New York that made 80% of the gay magazines in America for 15 years. And during that time, Bob Miser was still producing. You know, when I first started there, Bob Miser was still producing his magazine, and it was something that was laughed at in the office, you know, this little out-of-date magazine full of these grimy hustlers, you know, who would want this? And Bob felt that acutely. He felt that that he wasn't competitive anymore. He felt that there was no reason for anyone to look at his magazine. But he still had his hardcore fans who loved him and had been with him for a long time. And even if Bob had made no money, and in fact, had to pay, you know, and was losing money, he would have continued to photograph every man who came to his door because he was compelled to do it. So he just loved what he did. He loved what he did. I mean, beyond love even. It was who he was. Wow. Well, thank you so much for being here. And again, the name of the book is Bob Miser's AMG, A Thousand Model Directory. I've been speaking with Diane Hansen, the sexy books editor for Tashin. Thanks again, Diane. Thank you. And everybody should go to Tashin.com and buy that book right now. Yes, I agree. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. I'm Medea Ocher, the co-host this week, along with Kate Wolf. Thanks to our executive producer, Gustavo Turner, our fellow producers, Kate Wolf and Erica Recordin, editorial advisor, Dinah Lenny, engineer, Ernesto Arellano, researcher, Chloe Chap, production volunteer, Jake Levins, and special thanks, as always, to Alan Minsky. 